My name is Chris Charbonneau, and I'm the host of the Fall of Roe podcast. I'm a 40-year veteran of the pro-choice movement. I have been the CEO of Planned Parenthoods in seven different states and have decades of experience in the pro-choice realm. This is an unapologetically pro-choice podcast. We are going to talk about the disaster that is the unfolding dismantling of the Roe standard across the United States, creating 50 states worth of patchwork laws, the danger that that poses to anyone of reproductive age and all of us who love them. We need to figure out how we as a collective are going to get through this, change this situation, give ourselves some hope and get back to sanity in this country. Welcome, everyone, to the Fall of Roe podcast. My name is Chris Charbonneau, and I'm your host. Today, our guest, Alex Sanger, joins us. Alex is a longtime colleague of mine in the reproductive health and rights movement and uh, has a family legacy. Grandmother Margaret was one of the founders of Planned Parenthood. So greetings, Alex. This is an unapologetically pro-choice podcast. Uh, so let's have at it. Welcome this morning. How are you? I am great. Good to see you from a distance. Good, <laughs> Good to see you from a distance. Did you think we'd be where we are today? Yes. I've been thinking that for some time, which is why I wrote my book, Beyond Choice, in 2004, to prepare us for, for this moment and how we, how we move ahead. You know, the Republican uh, National Party has had Roe in its, uh, in its sights since it was decided. They were going to name justices to the court to overturn it, and they finally got the five votes they needed. Yeah, it's been a mathematical exercise all along, and I am um, always astounded by the idea that any senator would ever believe this wasn't the goal all along. You know, the, the gee, uh, they've told us they respect stare decisis. I mean, I, I just sat there in disbelief knowing that it was total fiction and um, that we were going to be here. And you and I share our concern for the disaster that is likely to unravel. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Susan Collins gets the booby prize on, on this one uh, for her remarks. And uh, I mean, I, I have a second home in Maine where, where I'm, I'm thinking of changing my voting registration to Maine to you know, vote again or against her next time. But before I do that, I'm changing it to Texas so I can vote down there. <laughs> maybe and maybe Oklahoma. Maybe maybe actually Idaho next to you. Exactly. Well, you know, you'd have to buy a lot of homes, Alex. <laughs> it's it's a it's a hard thing to do, but you were around in the days of illegal abortion in New York. Um, can you talk to me about what it was like in New York? I know that New York was a massive um end destination for a good many women in all parts of the country. And so do you have any any recollections of what those days were like? Well, I have plenty of recollections, uh, and we only have an hour. But New York, before 1970, permitted therapeutic abortion. And there was a system in New York that if you got two doctors to certify that the mental or physical health, emotional health of the woman would be uh, adversely impacted by a pregnancy and giving birth, then a, a, a legal abortion could be done. I've seen numbers that, you know, those legal abortions in New York numbered a quarter of a million, quarter of a, million a year. I'm not sure how accurate those statistics are. But 1970, New York decriminalized abortion by legislative action. And I always like to point out to people that in the 
in the state Senate, when the vote was taken, over 40% of the votes to decriminalize abortion came from Republicans. This was a bipartisan issue. Yes, it was. People all knew people who had died, and it was very bipartisan. And uh, even the most conservative elements of the Republican Party were pro-choice. Yeah, they, they were indeed. And there was a lot of uh, pressure from the clergy. A group was formed called the Clergy Consultation Service, and a, a wide variety of uh, denominations were, were members. Uh, no Catholics that I know of, but there were, you know all the Protestant and the Jewish faiths were there. And they would coordinate with, with ministers and pastors, uh, rabbis from other states uh, to get referrals from out of state, women coming to New York, and the doctors here would refer them to reputable uh, clinics to have a pregnancy termination to have an abortion. And, you know, what happened in New York was um, interesting. The uh, the first doctors to do the abortions um, outside of the framework of, of therapeutic abortion were private doctors setting up their own clinics. Uh, and Planned Parenthood was maybe about a year late. Uh, my, my Planned Parenthood affiliate, Planned Parenthood in New York City, now, we were about a year after Roe was decided because we had to get all kinds of approvals from our national organization. It, it, it was complex, but th- then we started doing abortions. And there were, you know, you know, regulations. The state health department got involved making regulations. And at the beginning, I remember that there was such concern about patient safety and well-being because of the really bad experience with illegal abortion and women dying that for legal abortions at our clinic, the state health department required us to have an ambulance standing in front of each of our clinics with the engine running. No. Yeah. I have never heard that story. That's fascinating. And after about six months of, of, you know, keeping records and having no adverse consequences, uh, the state uh, got rid of that regulation. Uh, But women women were coming from across, across the country to New York. You, of course, in Washington State had, by your referendum, decriminalized abortion, and Alaska and Hawaii did. And other states had taken uh, tiptoes into the water. Uh, California, Colorado, North Carolina, as I remember, uh, had, had broadened the exceptions. So, but about over 40% of women getting legal abortions in this country before Roe uh, were traveling to another state. Yeah. At great expense and obviously a lot of angst, because probably these were people who'd never traveled much before in their lives. Yeah. And the impact, of course, on on poor, uh, economically disadvantaged minorities, that was was the hardest impact. And so, um, you know, self-induced abortions remained being done. And uh, what's also little known is that maybe no surprise for those of us in New York, organized crime got into the, the business. Hmm. And uh, they started, organized crime started operating abortion clinics, not very reputable, of course, particularly safe. And Nixon set up a commission on organized crime in about 1970, looking at all the ways that they were making money. And abortion was about the third or fourth top money earner for organized crime back then. Wow, something to look forward to again, I guess. Yeah, well, you you know, where there's a vacuum, uh, I, you know, it's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, Chris, I, I, if you have time for you know, about a minute. Yeah. I've, I have a you know, direct personal experience 
with um, illegal and criminal abortion because I arranged one. Okay. In the, in the you know mid sixties, um, a high school friend of mine called me up. I hadn't seen her in a year, and she said to me, "I'm pregnant and I need help." Now, I guess she selected me to make this phone call to, but she knew of the, my family legacy, which was birth control, not abortion. But she figured you'd be in the know in whatever way. You'd be in the know. Yeah, and I was not in the know. <laughs> I asked her. I asked her on my college campus. And I, what I said was, I've gotten my girlfriend in trouble. You know, total lie. It wasn't me. So a friend of a friend gave me a phone of a doctor in Washington, D.C. and said, call this number. And just the code word is, just say, I need help. So I called this number. And the guy said to me, next Wednesday, and gave me the address of a parking lot in Arlington, Virginia. And he said $300. And he put the phone down. So I called this girl, and this is a friend of mine, and I told her this, and she said, okay, but I don't have $300. I don't know what the equivalent of today's dollars is, but that, that's a lot of money in 1966. Sure. And so I go out to my friends around campus, and I take up a collection, and I wire her $300. And she says, great. And I said, do you want me to come with you? And she said, no, I'm just going to do this. And I, I said, you sure? There might be you know, side effects, after effects. And she said, no, I got it covered. So she went down there, met the guy in the parking lot, and he was an OBGYN, fully licensed. And he was known to be the uh, abortion provider for all the women staff members on Capitol Hill. That they would get pregnant by their bosses and they would go to him. So he did a totally professional job. She was safe, no problems. Fast forward a year, the police raid his offices and arrest him. So he must have missed the payoff, something. And he's indicted under the District of Columbia abortion statute, which does permit abortions to save the life or preserve the health of the, uh, of the patient, of the woman. He gets convicted and he appeals his conviction. And this goes to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1970, three years before Roe. The guy's name was Vuich, Dr. Vuich. And the case is United States versus Vuich. And this was the first Supreme Court case dealing with abortion that they looked at, at abortion laws. And in that case, they interpreted what the word health meant. And it said it mental and physical and emotional health, the patient's general well-being. And it's up to the doctor to make an analysis of that. And if he thought or it would be adversely effective, he could legally perform an abortion. So that, that decision was the precursor of Roe. And the Doe case, which Roe and Doe were up in the same day, three three years later. So the, the Roe court had already broadened the health exception to abortion laws. Um, and that was that was Dr. Vuich. And I, I shudder every time I think of it. Could, you know, I and my you know, friend could have been in his office when the police raided. Yeah. You know, and I would have been an accessory to uh, procuring an, an illegal abortion. But it was a scary time. You were an accessory. You just didn't get caught at it, thankfully. And that that's the position we're talking about putting thousands and thousands of people in every year for something that we've been doing legally and effectively and happily and safely uh, for all these years, which is just the worst pity. Those are chilling stories, Alex, um, because that one went well. You know, a lot of times things didn't go as well. You have spent your entire career looking after 
women, anyone who can get pregnant and rights and have been raising money to make sure that the people who don't have their own can get services and all of that. You have have uh, now taken on a role with Fos Feminista, which is a coalition of reproductive health organizations that um, serve people in, well, you tell me, you tell me exactly where all Fos Feminista serves. Yeah, we are, uh, we, are, we are an outgrowth of the Western Hemisphere Office of the International Planned Parenthood, combined with the International Women's Health Coalition, and also combined with the Center for Health Equity and Gender Equity, uh, which was a Washington, D.C. organization. So all three organizations combined, and it's called FOS Feminista. FOS is the Haitian Creole word for force, and feminista, feminista, of course, is Spanish and Portuguese for, for uh, feminist. So it's a feminist force. It's mainly Latin America. That's where the most organizations are that are partners, but also it's sub-Saharan Africa, Middle East, uh, Europe. We have an office in the Ukraine, and all the staff is fortunately now out in Poland safely. We have partners in India, uh, South Asia. So it's worldwide. And we do, like the USA Planned Parenthood, we're doing reproductive health care, clinical services, education, and advocacy and serving women around the globe, um, and lobbying, and often successfully for the decriminalization of abortion, which has happened in the last couple of years, the nations of, I'm going to maybe forget one or two, Uruguay, Argentina, Colombia, Mexico, and Kenya, and I'm forgetting one or two, have all decriminalized abortion. Right. And Chile is about to in their constitution. And that's because of the work that we've been doing um, around the world. It's called the Green Wave. Women in Latin America started this in Argentina wearing a green bandana around their neck when, when they march on the, their parliaments and their congresses. And uh, we have helped uh, organize women and men, you know, mainly in Latin America, but also Africa, to decriminalize abortion as, as a women's rights matter and as a health matter. That's so exciting, Alex. And and. And so long in coming. And I was admiring on the website of Fos Feminista the description of a commitment to leadership from the global South so that, uh, yes, we can raise money and do a variety of things in our neck of the woods, but that uh, the leadership would come from the places that we're talking about. Absolutely. Our, yeah, our, our, the, the director is Argentinian. And the board, I think it's a, you know, at the moment, a small board. I think there are nine members. Uh, one, one is from the USA. All the others are from, from the global south, scattered around the globe. And it's a wonderfully diverse board and diverse staff. It's really such an honor to work, work with alongside them. Oh, as it would be. And, and what huge successes already racking up. What I'm wondering is, how does the first ever movement of a first world democracy backwards like this adversely impact the rest of the world? Have you noodled that at all? Yeah, our, our staff is uh, on top of that and they're nervous. I'm nervous. You know, w- one would hope that the rest of the world, uh, you know, they emulate our, our movies and our music. One would hope it would stop there. Uh, yeah. Maybe they would emulate the good parts of our democracy, not the such the bad parts. But we are worried about a ripple effect and uh, the anti-forces who want to keep abortion uh, criminalized, them looking at this as an example and um, trying their best to undo what, what we've worked so hard to do. But I, you know, history 
is on our side. Uh, this, you know, I, I refuse to be depressed about the United States. I've been at this long enough. My grandmother and I combined now for 110 years. <laughs> and uh, you know, I totally refuse to be depressed. It's, it, history moves in cycles. You know, Martin Luther King says the arc is towards justice. Well, it is. Uh, it's toward the, the rights of women, autonomy of women. And, uh, you know, the government keeping out of our most private and intimate decisions. So it, it'll come back. I agree with you. It will come back. Uh, and, and as we know, prohibition never works. And we have an example in the United States of prohibition of alcohol that we actually took through the entire Constitution and then back out again because it was such a disastrous idea. Here we go again, but with something that affects more people and in more deep ways, you know, whether or, or not you decide to build a family is such a private and profound kind of decision making to do that having the government in there and actually various theocrats shoving their religion down the throats of all Americans who may or may not be adherents to their belief system, you know, it really strikes me as a as a thing that cannot prevail in a in an America with the values we have. We also don't have any kind of value that prizes forced pregnancy. And that's what we're talking about here. Yeah. I mean, I, I suffered through reading the Alito draft opinion. Don't give me a quiz on it. But, um, <laughs> you know, you, you think about what a parade of horribles with his reasoning. I mean, under this, a state could pass a law requiring women to have uh, four children. Or it could pass a law saying you could only have one child, or it could ban childbirth altogether. I mean, there's no limit of what the state could intervene in family life could be under, under this opinion. People never think about that. They always think about stopping abortion. They never think about what it means to give a state the rights to tell you what to do. And you only need to look at China some years back and their one child policy to see how how badly this could go wrong. There's nothing that would protect you from that in this environment. Yeah. The even worse case, if there is one, was Romania, because they, they banned uh, not only abortion, but contraception. Their population was shrinking. They wanted to build it back up. And the population, the birth rate did rise initially for a couple of years. Then it went back down to its old level. And the effect was, of course, it was illegal abortions and really rotten contraceptives were being used. And women were getting maimed, dying, or rendered sterile. And so the irony of this policy, which was aiming to increase childbearing, decreased the number of women who could have children because they were getting botched in these illegal abortions. Yeah. I mean, Romania is the poster child for every dumb right-wing policy you could enact that comes out dreadfully. And they were the only ones we had to study for years and years because nobody could ethically do the science experiment we're about to engage in. Yeah. I'm told, and I'd love to have a Romanian expert confirm this, that when they, Ceausescu got overthrown, they were put in prison uh, and they were about to be shot. Before the government gave the order to have them shot, they reversed the laws decriminalizing abortion and birth control. I mean, they did that first and then they shot them. <laughs> <laughs> Word to the wise, Congress of the United States, right? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, no, I mean, what a nightmare scenario and that we would voluntarily sign up for this when the vast majority of Americans think that this is a horrific idea. 
And in many states, they have legislatures that don't match the feelings of the people that were elected by a tiny minority of the citizens of a place. You know, the states that are called air quotes red are at least at the very least purple, the very least mixed bag in all of those states. And, you know, no one signed up for this world. And and uh, I, I think that people cannot imagine what they have coming. I think that there will be a brisk business in self-abortion. And we saw recently in that Texas case, self-abortion is not illegal in any but a couple of states. Um, and, and it's not from any new law. It's it's uh, from ancient, you know, I mean, the kind of laws that uh, Supreme Court Justice Alito was quoting from to say, you know, how very long the history of anti-choiceness was, which I thought was bizarre. I mean, skip over the last 50 years of good health policy and go back to 1700s for your for your site. But in any case, I think that there will be a lot of self-abortion. And as somebody who served on Planned Parenthood's insurance company board, that thought fills me with some trepidation. I have no objection to people taking their lives, the control of their lives into their own hands. I think there are DIY projects that work a lot better than doing your own abortion um, for the first time ever uh, in your life. If you're in a desperate circumstance and and your story about your friend that got cared for by a qualified OBGYN, you know, gave me heart. It's not that it can't be done. It's that there are certain risks in doing it. And I worry for everybody involved in that situation because often it's not born of political independent thoughts. It's born of desperation. Yeah. Fos feminista have a lot of experience with that because up until recently in Latin America, abortion was criminalized. And so the women um, there, um, some, some wise pharmaceutical company, discovered that the, this ulcer medication called Cytotec, it had a side effect of causing a miscarriage. And so that became widely known, thanks to us um, and, and others, and, and women, women were taking it. So we had to institute a whole um, protocol for post-abortion care, mm-hmm. post-Cytotec care. And we actually got a lot of governments who were still wanted to criminalize abortion, let us publicize the steps to take after you've taken Cytotec. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, you know, we do have experience with that. I mean, I would say to every woman in uh, Idaho and Oklahoma and Texas, you got to stockpile A, pregnancy tests, B, morning after pill, C, Cytotec or some equivalent, Mifepristone, uh, <laughs> if you can get it. Yes. Just so you know, Cytotec is the brand name for uh, mesoprostol. Mesoprostol and mesoprostol is also used frequently for arthritis and other conditions. So it is widely available and it turns out it works all by itself. Right, Alex? Yeah, it does. Works by itself. So I think there are going to be a lot of women, either arthritis or ulcers, um, you know, getting getting prescriptions. Sort of like in the old days, uh, teenage girls would get the pill for acne or for menstrual regulation. Um, (laughs) And so there there are lots of ways to get get around this with sympathetic physicians, of which there are plenty. Of which there are plenty, and and especially after this. And no one can tell if you've taken uh, an abortion medication why your miscarriage is happening. No one would know that you took anything. And so if you're in a hostile environment, there's no need to be overly communicative about that. Yeah, we have uh, you know, some pretty um, dicey and sad experience in El Salvador 
which is the worst offender in uh, Latin America, criminalizing abortion for every reason, and not even to save the life of a mother. W- women are getting arrested there when they, they present with a miscarriage at the hospital when they're hemorrhaging. They get arrested, indicted, and put in jail. And it's happening all the time in El Salvador. So the, uh, the, the surveillance state, um, I, I don't underestimate some of the off-the-charts right wing here from uh, having hospitals reporting uh, miscarriages, the district attorneys, and indictments uh, just to scare women. So it's, uh, that, that's going to lead, of course, to women not getting the health care they need. Yeah. And uh, w- women dying as, as a result. You know, it's 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 going to take. If I can be just totally outlandish for a moment, uh, mm-hmm. forgive me. It's going to take the daughters of these white legislators dying in the streets to have them change their mind. They don't care about women of color, uh, girls of color, BIPOC women, Native American women. They don't care. This whole thing was done to stop white women from having abortions. They want white women to have more children. It's a totally racist policy. It's been that way from the beginning in the 19th century. And it's part of this whole this whole business about replacement theory, right, that we're hearing about. Absolutely. They want white women to reproduce. And I actually got picketed once by the Klan when I was uh, in Arkansas running Planned Parenthood. And they were yelling, there are white babies being aborted. It wasn't a secret. No, they, they, they've been, they, they were saying this in 1870 when they were passing these Comstock laws. But back then, it was the Irish that they were worried about. Uh, they weren't worried, worried about African-Americans because they were so disenfranchised. No one cared about the African-American population. But with the, the Irish, my, my grandmother's uh, parents uh, coming over in the, in the potato famine, which they did. Mm-hmm. They were having a lot of kids and the, the white Protestants wanted to put a stop to their own wives having fewer children. Mm-hmm. And But we know these self-same politicians will go to any length to pay for and procure abortions for their girlfriends. Oh, yes. We have seen that. And, uh, you know, Planned Parenthood, to its credit, respects patient privacy. But there's got to be a list somewhere in our files for every politician (laughs) that's done it. Or we need to start making it right now. I I, I think there would be enough new offenders to, uh, you know, it's like, you know, there's a quid pro quo that goes on here, people. We are only respectful of the rules as long as you respect the rules. To the point of, of your legacy, your grandmother that brought us basically birth control and the organizations that that uh, provide birth control, you know, has since been canceled or or as I prefer to say, because I think it's the same phenomenon shunned by sort of the folks that want to express their concern about racism and their concern about long racist held thoughts and whatnot. I think as a as a trained historian myself, um, degree from the University of Washington, that it's always a little dicey to put today's values and political arguments back in history onto other people because they were not having those self-same conversations. And while everyone knew racism was wrong, I think your grandmother actually tried to do a fair amount of work that was inclusive, regardless of of how, you know, who all she met with and and what standards that held. I hope you're not being canceled as a, as an extension of this, Alex. That's my main concern in this conversation. Well, I personally have have not been. Everyone I talk to is totally respectful of of my grandmother, and I dare I use the word worshipful because of what she accomplished in her lifetime. It, it was really stunning uh, what she accomplished 
for all for for all for all Americans. I mean, her her perfect is pr- profound on, on the planet. What she did for for women and well being of children. It's the basic problem I I have, um, and, and I, I've written about this, and uh, your listeners can find it on the web about Margaret Sanger and eugenics. People conflate eugenics with racism, and they're not the same. They're not the same thing. My grandmother was the furthest thing from racist I've ever met. And um, I'm sounding like uh, Senator Benson uh, attacking Dan Quayle. Like, you know, I, I knew Jack Kennedy and you're, you're no Jack Kennedy. <laughs> right. Well, I knew my I knew my grandmother. Not a chance was she racist. But she got went into the eugenics world because she back then was looking for credibility. Birth control was illegal. And she was trying to get, get support from the establishment to decriminalize uh, birth control. And a lot of the establishment was eugenics. People who wanted, at a very basic level, they wanted healthy children born. That's what my grandmother wanted because she was a nurse. Sure. She was an OBGYN nurse. She delivered babies. One in five babies back in 1900 died before their fifth birthday. In the slums, it was one in three. She was seeing this carnage of unhealthy children being born because the mothers were unhealthy. Because of the way that the living environment, of the poor sanitation, poor water, poor food, she was putting all of those issues together as one before we even thought about this a couple of years ago, about how all the issues are, are connected. And so that was where she came from. And the second thing that she believed in was that no one should be a mother unless they were capable of being a mother. And that's where she got into really dangerous territory about the disabled or people who were called unfit or low, low intelligence quotient. How do you measure that back then? They were, you know, who knew? But so she bought into that. But her intentions were that, you know, every child deserves a, a good mother and a good father. You know, she once said, well, you know, you have to have a license to drive a car. Why, why shouldn't you have to have a license to have a child? And, uh, you know, that, that, that was her thinking. But she did more for African-Americans, getting Planned Parenthood to open clinics in the South. She opened the first clinic in Harlem, and she did it with the African-American leaders of Harlem, Adam Clayton Powell, Mary McLeod Bethune, the reverends of the churches there. They, they were all on her board opening the, this clinic in Harlem. It was really a community project that that she uh, introduced, but that the community very much uh, embraced and led after that, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the clinic was part of Planned Parenthood uh, for a while. And now it's part of Harlem Hospital. Um, it's st- still operating. So she believed every woman had the right to have access to, to birth control and education and to have it be publicly funded. And uh, that, that was her split from the New Deal because Roosevelt wouldn't put birth control in, in the New Deal as part of health funding. And of course, it was the two Carolinas that did it because they were trying to decrease the black population. So it was racism there again, re- rearing its head. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm cognizant that there are birth control adherents who did it for racist reasons. And now there are racists who don't want birth control for also racist reasons. And so I I think, though, that you are not wrong about the idea that even birth control could come under fire with this administration, uh, not this presidential administration, but with the current uh, SCOTUS regime, and uh, that that is, in fact, the target of the right wing. You know, if they successfully overturn Roe, then they're going to attempt to get it to be nationwide. 
And that would be purely a matter of a couple of Senate wins and a few House wins at this point, and then a president who would sign off on such a bill. And so that would be within a, a, a few years imagining to have abortion law be equally anti-choice across the entire country and then have contraception be the new controversy in their target. Yeah, and they, they will define contraception to be abortion. They'll, they'll look at the pill, the IUD, yeah. implants, um, injectables. They'll, they'll say these are, these are causing an abortion. Uh, so cl- clearly it's in their sights. I'll never forget what the first George Bush had a, uh, a man in charge of the public health program, uh, the Title 10 program in the Department of Health in Washington. And he said, contraception enabled my mother to go out and have an affair and it broke up my parents' marriage. Oh, I remember this guy. Yeah. I remember this guy. He was he was a real piece of work. But yeah, I mean, you know, it, what they're talking about is women's empowerment. You know, you can't keep them on the farm if they can get contraception. On the other hand, they nobody has, you know, seven children anymore, practically. And people uh, are a lot better off financially and they can send their kids on to do things past high school, whether that's an apprenticeship or a or a community college or a full-fledged four-year kind of uh, arrangement. And uh, people have the ability to do those things. I, I think that the people have lived so long with the certainty of contraception, thanks to your grandmother, the Planned Parenthood Federation, and all the good people that made that happen who were not part of Planned Parenthood. And imagining people going after that just strikes people as inconceivable. I've had, I can't tell you how many people talk to me and say, I can't really believe they're really going to overturn Roe. I can't really believe they're going to, they're not really going to do this, are they? It's like, they have been dead set on doing this, to your point, Alex, since the day after it happened. Yeah, absolutely. And so many of my uh, Republican friends, and I have tons of Republican friends, voted Republican, saying exactly what you said. And now it's up to them to say, well, I'm not going to vote that way. Anymore. And, and they either hold their nose and vote for a Democrat or just don't cast the ballot. And um, it, it's going to be up to the, you know, the, the same Republicans, men and women, who don't want that world that you and I have just been talking about. I just, as you were talking about uh, the, the, the parade of horribles that these uh, Republicans think that contraception caused, all you got to do is read your Bible to see, you know, fornication, adultery, um, <laughs> out of wedlock births happened long before the pill was invented. <laughs> yeah. I once had a, had a chance to speak to the head of the Chinese Family Planning uh, Association, and he asked me, um, they were coming to talk to us about our some of our education interventions for at-risk youth. And I said, well, how many at-risk youth do you think there are in China? And he said, 350 million. <laughs> <laughs> I, I blanched. I blanched. But when I asked him what he thought, whether he thought it was the decadent West causing China to have problems, and he turned to me and he laughed and he said, no, it's just human nature. And so I think we all understand around the globe that um, at a certain age, people become sexual beings. And without contraception, they become parents, um, maybe in, in uh, inauspicious times for that. And so the project has always been to let people make their own decisions and lead their own best lives and be able to plan enough so that they can follow their dreams. And Alex, you've been helping with that endeavor through all the decades I've known you, and I can't thank you enough for that. 
Well, it's 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 really been an honor, and I, and in my sad, uh, you know, occasional moments, I go back to Rogers and Hammerstein, Oklahoma, that great song, "Doing What Comes Naturally." <laughs> People are doing what comes naturally, and we're we're programmed to do this. That's right. There aren't billions of people for nothing, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, n- not to get into the war about biology and culture, which I'm always in the middle of, but uh, you know, this is human nature. Absolutely. Yep, yep, yep. It sure sure is. What haven't I asked you that you would love to have a chance to talk to this podcast audience about? Well, I'm kind of wondering what kind of what part of human behavior will change with abortion criminalized, and are people's sexual practices going to change? Is the is the mating system gonna gonna change? How people, you know. COVID has already totally affected the whole mating system. You can't go, you can't go meet people. And you know, people meet in one of two places. And I know I'm going to get calls on this, either at the office, that's about a third of marriages, or at bars, right? Yeah. That's, that's where you meet. Mm-hmm. And that's not happening or in a reduced way. But the whole mating system of trying out a partner sexually to see if you're compatible before you marry them or decide to live together, the risk of that has now been quadrupled with abortion being illegal. And so how are, how are humans going to react to this? Will there be re, you know reduced premarital sexual activity, reduced, dare I say, vaginal sex, but compensating other kinds of sex, of which there's plenty out there? You know, one of the basic things that the uh, biologists and anthropologists tell me about the mating system and having sex before you marry is you want to make sure that the partners are fertile so that you can have children. That's why you have sex before you get together. And so getting pregnant, that's the indicator, you know, bing, okay, we can now get married. Yeah. Marriage often followed a pregnancy in the Middle Ages. For that reason, people didn't want to take the chance of barrenness in a partner. And, you know, because they were all about, we got to make our own farm workers, right? Yeah, you bet. And uh, people have done uh, research in the church registers in Puritan New England. In one third of the marriages, the bride was pregnant, you know, in in Puritan New England. So this this is is universal. So it's going to be interesting how this, how humanity adapts uh, to it. And the other thing I want to ask you, and this is maybe an old wives' tale. I have heard that in the 1960s in Seattle, your hometown, Mm -hmm. on Friday evenings, there was a Japan Airlines flight to Tokyo. Pregnant women would get on. It was a charter. And and when when 747s became available, it was a 747. But before that, there was always a charter. And a Japanese travel agency arranged it. And the entire plane was full of women who were paying a couple thousand dollars a piece. Can you imagine in the 60s how much money that was to fly to Japan, um, have safe abortion there, go visit a few shrines to pick up some little souvenirs and then come back to tell their friends that they'd been on this lark to Japan. And that was exactly how it went for the wealthy. And they knew that they were going to live to tell this tale, which was not true of everyone else. Absolutely not. The thing that um, maybe I could leave you with a, a question for your next podcast. What is going to be our message to the to the middle out there? And I've looked at the 
the polls, and that's all it's in my book. But ever since Roe, the, the polling numbers have not changed on, about abortion appreciably. There's about you know a, between a third and forty percent say abortion should be totally legal. There's about twenty percent say totally illegal, and then there's this forty percent in the middle. 30 to 40 in the middle. And that, that has not changed. And all the work you and I have done with our colleagues has not changed that. I've not seen a recent poll. I don't, I don't think Gallup has done one. I follow Gallup. And uh, I'm sure they're doing one right now. Well, I saw Marist the other day, and people are galvanized around this because they're very fearful. So I think that We've got, in fact, I saw one yesterday where 51% of Republicans don't want the court to do what they're going to do with Roe. And I think that's really interesting. I think that the fact was that Roe was always a compromise. Basically, Roe says the first trimester, women can make the choice that they want to make. The second trimester, the states can regulate to make sure that the medical profession is safe about whatever they do. And in the third trimester, there's a um, governmental interest in continuing the pregnancy. And I would say, we would all say by the time someone's in their third trimester, it's probably showtime. And so I think that's always been a compromise that had been crafted together and people have lived with. And to upend that in favor of a small minority of people, I think that when you poll something like the people who believe abortion should be illegal all the time is something like 8%. And and that's what the Oklahoma women today are facing. And of course, that will mean the travel that you and I alluded to at the beginning of the show. Yeah, that's what it's going to mean. And, and doing it at home, self-aborting, and it's going to affect the minorities and uh, the disadvantaged. It's, uh, it's you know, it's uh, clear as day to me. If you've already been suffering, yeah, if you've already been suffering um, disparities in the quality of your health care because of racism or opportunity or medical deserts or wherever you live, none of that will be improved by this scenario. Absolutely nothing. Exactly right. You know, you, we, we look at things like increased incidence of black maternal mortality as opposed to white, which is a national scandal. And there are a lot of reasons behind that, racism included. Um, and lack of lack of services, but um, you know, black women are at much greater risk um, in, in, in childbearing. Yeah, I mean, and we have to remember around the globe, about three hundred thousand women die a year from pregnancy-related causes. Thirty to forty thousand die from illegal botched abortions, and we just have to remember: you can't ban abortion. All you can do is ban legal abortion. Yeah, uh, you can make it unsafe. You can't make it go away. Um, and we have to keep explaining this to people. There's a whole new generation that hasn't had this discussion. So hopefully uh, you and I today have gone some small way to including more people in that discussion. You can't make abortion go away. You can make it unsafe. And that's the entire project that we're engaged in here, unfortunately for us. So I think, Alex, you gave some good advice. Get pregnancy tests. I added in my first podcast, everyone of childbearing age, get yourself a really good, effective, long-acting, reversible contraceptive method. Um, make sure you're, you're not a statistic. Make sure you're opening up space in clinics for people who have uh, dire things going on to be cared for. And aid access, look that up online, is selling the medications that are required, still legal in all states. The Supreme Court has not ruled. And you do not have to be pregnant to get them, and you don't have to be female to get them. Not a bad idea for people to uh, stock up for their loved ones. 
And as we await where we are in history is awaiting the Supreme Court to come down with what will in the best case scenario, be a disaster. When, when I hear John Roberts talk about wanting to accept the the Mississippi law as the new standard, like that's good, that's a 15-week abortion ban. And frankly, all that does is invite right-wing politicians to find 87,000 ways to obstruct the getting of abortions for all the people who might need them. And it would mean that no one could ever take a genetic test to find out if anything was wrong with your pregnancy and do anything about it after you got the results because you're simply going to be too late for that. So it it really is a huge intrusion, not on not only on the people who are planning and might need an abortion today, but the people who are planning intended pregnancies that they find might go sideways in some way or that they wanted reassurance would not. So it wouldn't wouldn't do you a bit of good to know that now. So Terrible times. Terrible. And I'll add one bit of advice to the men out there. Wear condoms. And condoms for men. Um, Vasectomies, if you're not planning any more children. And I would caution that vasectomies are not casually reversible while we talk about them being reversible. After you've been vasectomized for over a year, your your, uh, reversibility goes way down. So condoms is what we got. And... um, Take care of yourselves, everybody out there, because Alex and I sit here together uh, worried about millions of people having experiences that are not the pleasurable side and suboptimal in so, so, so many ways. Alex Sanger, I can't thank you enough for being on my podcast. Thank you for sharing your stories and your wisdom and your decades and decades of experience. Thank you for all you do for the women, girls. people of color, uh, BIPOC folks that need reproductive health care and have done for decades. Well, thank you for all your hard work. It's really, really a pleasure to have worked with you all these years. Absolutely. Thank you, everybody, for coming in to join the Fall of Row podcast. See you next time. Thank you for listening, friends. This is Chris Charbonneau. It's been my pleasure to host this broadcast for you today. And if you'd like to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and give us a five-star review. If you'd like to connect with me in some way, please go to fallofrow.com for information. Thank you.